All right, all right, welcome. Let's go ahead and grab a Bible and open to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10, we have been working our way through the parables of Jesus, uh, some of the parables of Jesus anyway, and uh, we're going to cover a famous parable today, and there's a couple weird things about this parable. First, the reason that the parable is famous is not the reason Jesus told the parable, so you probably have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan, but you probably um, aren't familiar with or as familiar with the reason Jesus actually told that parable. And then the second thing that's kind of weird about this is Jesus tells Tells a story in just an odd sort of a way. So let's jump in and find out what Jesus was actually trying to communicate. And to do that, we will start in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer said, Desiring to justify himself to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, so there's a number of characters in the story that we are going to have to define a little bit to get what is going on here. And what Jesus is saying is going to be communicated through these characters. So we got to know who they are. So we have a lawyer, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, and none of them would be very familiar to us just in general culture in 2020, at least the way they are used in the story. So first off, we have a lawyer. Right Now, this is not a lawyer like we have today. Yes, this man was an educated expert in the law, but remember, there is no separation of church and state in the Jewish society in first century Israel. So, the law that we're talking about here is biblical law. In fact, the Jews referred the first five books of your Old Testament as the law. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the law in terms of the Jewish culture of the day. So he was an expert and he was educated, but it was in the biblical law. And that carried some weight in religious circles in that culture. Maybe the closest thing we can compare it to do today was what we call a theologian. Uh, he was formally educated. He had a lot of knowledge about all the details and intricacies of the biblical law and how to apply it. And because of his training and expertise, many people would ask for his perspective on issues pertaining to different aspects of the law. And like today, those who are formally educated at the highest levels usually teach other people. So he very likely taught in uh, like some sort of a university setting or something like that. So 
If you picture in your mind a theologian, a professor of sorts at some very religious university, you're probably not too far off as far as a 2020 comparison. Now, the thing about this man and his position was that he was a member of the religious elite. And the thing about the religious elite, the highest level leaders of the Jewish faith at the time, is they didn't think very much of Jesus. He was a troublemaker who didn't go to their schools and get one of their diplomas, didn't fit into their boxes. And yes, he could draw a crowd, but they definitely looked down on Jesus because he was uneducated and wasn't one of them. He wasn't a religious elitist. So what could he really know about the law of God, right? What could this guy really teach us about the scriptures? Uh, he, he didn't go to any of our schools. He doesn't have our PhDs or diplomas. So they looked down upon him. And so... Being a member of this religious elite, this religious expert in the law, this theologian, takes it upon himself to, in verse 25, it says, put Jesus to the test. And so we have this element of hypocrisy right at the beginning here, because this guy probably doesn't think very highly of Jesus, and also his question is not authentic. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to put Jesus to the test, not ask a legitimate question. So even though the question isn't disingenuous, it's a great question to ask. Hey, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I go to heaven when I die? When, when this life is over, how do I make sure I end up in a good spot? That's a, that's a great question to ask. And Jesus, in response, does not tell him something but actually asks him something, which is actually very kind of Jesus because Jesus actually knew this guy's heart. He knew he was just trying to test him. He knew the hypocritical nature of the question, but Jesus doesn't respond uh, in disingenuous answer like this guy probably deserved, but Jesus responds with truth. And Jesus actually, what he does is refer back to this guy's specialty, this guy's, the lawyer's area of expertise. And Jesus says in verse 26, what is written in the law? So Jesus is pointing people back to the scriptures, which Jesus does over and over and over again. If you pay attention to the way Jesus teaches, he's always referring back to the Bible, the word of God. He asks this guy, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this is probably a little bit shocking to this man because he was probably not expecting Jesus to ask his opinion on the law. He had probably heard that Jesus was a troublemaker again. He was probably heard that Jesus was undermining the authority of the Jewish leaders. And so to have Jesus not only uphold and support the authority of the Bible, but also defer to this man's interpretation of the scripture would have been pretty unexpected if this guy was expecting a debate, right? He's probably thinking Jesus... He's maybe heard all these things about Jesus. Oh, he's a this and he's a that and he doesn't think this and he he's not one of us. And then when he asked Jesus the question, Jesus says, I don't know. What do you think about the Bible? You've read it. You What, what do you think it says? I mean, that would kind of throw him off guard. And so verse 27, the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the lawyer quotes a passage from the Old Testament in your Bible, which would have been literally the most famous passage in the entire Old Testament to the Jewish people, because it is a prayer that the religious Jewish people would recite twice a day, every single day. 
The prayer is called the Shema, uh, not for any crazy reason, but just because the Hebrew word that is the first word of the prayer is Shema. So that's why they call it that, creative, I know. And the prayer comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then the lawyer adds the second most important commandment to the end from Leviticus chapter 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so this is great, right? We have a super oversimplification of all the Bible has to say and to teach, an easy summary of biblical truth. Follow these two commandments and we go to heaven. Everything is fine. This is great. I love simple. I went to public school. This is helpful. So Jesus says... Again, probably a huge surprise to this guy. Hey, man, appreciate the question. Sounds like you got it figured out. Just go and do what you said and you'll be fine, right? I mean, that's a summary, but Jesus is like, you read your Bible. Sounds like you understand it pretty well. Go love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and go love your neighbor as yourself and you'll end up in a good spot. Problem solved, case closed. Next question. The problem is I don't love anybody like I love myself, right? I love me some me. And the way I think about others never even comes close to the approaching how I think about myself. And that's true for every single person on the planet. And the lawyer probably feels that tension. And so he says this in verse 29. Look at his question. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? I think this is ridiculously ironic uh, because probably the most educated man in the crowd has trouble with the simplest question imaginable, right? If you look at this, these two commandments and just kind of everything that's implied and what's going on in the conversation with Jesus talking about eternal life and heaven and, and all of these different things, there's a lot of really deep and hard to grasp questions around this idea of loving God and loving other people and eternal life. And you could wrestle with any of these questions. What does it mean to love God? Is love an emotion or is love an action? What does it mean to love God with all your mind? Is love an idea? How do we love God with our soul? And all of these are great questions. But the one question that this guy has a problem with is not any of those really thought-provoking deep questions. The one of the smartest guys in the crowd has the problem with this question, who is my neighbor? Which is probably the simplest question of the, like, this is the easiest one. Like, normal people be like, I know who my neighbor is. You can't figure that out. You, like, having all these debates about these deep issues and you can't figure out who your neighbor is. It's hilarious, right? Because it's the easiest question to answer out of the whole thing. And it's true that smart people sometimes grossly overcomplicate things. And here is a guy who represents a religious system that has overthought this idea and turned a very simple concept into a literally unanswerable question. Instead of spending their time and energy actually loving people, they were having debates about what God could possibly have meant by love your neighbor as yourself. Be nice to people. Be kind to people. The people you would want... To, you would want them to treat you in a certain way, then treat them in that same way. It's a very simple concept. And the reason this became such an issue is because this religious elite wanted to make an excuse for themselves on why there were certain people on the planet whom they felt they were excused from loving like themselves. 
This is why this became an issue. Not because there was an actual question about who was their neighbor, but because they wanted to justify themselves on why they weren't loving certain people in the way that the Bible called them to love them. Just like Peter last week when he asked the question, how many times do I forgive? And we talked about the real question was, when can I stop forgiving, God? Jesus, when when is the line when I can finally stop forgiving people? Because this forgiving thing is really a drain and a drag and I don't like doing it. So when can I stop? Where's the line when, when I cross that line, I could stop forgiving? This is the exact same question, but now about people. Who are the people I don't have to love, Jesus? Who are the people that aren't considered my neighbor? Who are the people that I can go, nah, you don't deserve the kindness and generosity that I would expect from others. And so I don't have to love you like I love myself because you're not my neighbor. So this religious system, these religious elite had grown up with this system that was drawing a circle around people they were comfortable loving. And then anyone who was outside of that circle, they had a justification for not loving them because they would say, oh, they're not my neighbor. They're not my neighbor. I'm excused from loving them because they're clearly not my neighbor. And Jesus replies with a parable, one you've probably at least heard of, the parable of the good Samaritan. So let's look at verse 30. It says this, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion." So the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a well-known road through the hills, uh, small mountains. <laughs> you know, Middle East is kind of like back east. You know, they call it mountains. We out west are like, yeah, mountains, sure, whatever. Uh, but, you know, like hills and valleys, and you know, they're not quite to the scale that the West Coast is used to. But, hey, good for them. They have mountains. So anyway, don't look down on them. Be nice to them. And this was a dangerous road because as it came through these small kind of hills and mountains and valleys, uh, like many roads, it went along kind of this, uh, what at one point was probably like a creek bed or something like that. You know, if you're driving up to a ski mountain or something like that, you're usually heading along in the bottom of a canyon. And this was kind of like the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is at the northern end of the Dead Sea. You're losing elevation the whole time. You're kind of going down this probably, like I said, was a creek bed at some point in time. They don't get a lot of rain there. But anyway, that's the idea. And so it's very narrow, twisty, turny. Uh, And because of that, it would have been a great place for people with bad intentions to hide out. Right? They hide just around the corner or they hide just up on the hillside or around behind a rock or just out of sight where you can't see them. And then they descend on you. And because it's narrow, because the hillsides are kind of steep, because you know there's only kind of one way in and one way out, it's not easy to get away. And so this became not only a dangerous place, but a well-known kind of dangerous place in that culture. If you were thinking of like a, an equivalent from your own life, think dark alley, downtown, late at night. Right? This is a dangerous place. This isn't a place you want to be stuck. This isn't a place that you want to be alone. This isn't a pl- like there's a lot of good reasons to know that this is not a good situation to be in. So this man is in this spot and he is robbed, beaten and stripped naked and left on the side of the road to die. And when it says half dead, this means if this guy doesn't get help, he's not going to recover. So the first guy who comes along is a priest. 
Now, again, let's define this a little bit like we define lawyer. Let's define priest because we don't have priests. Well, we don't have priests in this same sense uh, in 2020. The priest would have been the top level of religious and political leaders in the country. This would have been the most important and most influential group of people in the country. And supposedly, I'd say supposedly a little air quotes with my fingers, the most godly. Because the priests were supposed to represent the people before God. And the Bible actually lays out very clear specifications where only the priests would be allowed to offer sacrifices at the temple and lead the religious and political aspects of the country. So here is one of the most recognized leaders of the country, supposedly very close to God, very pleasing to God, supposedly very godly. And he sees this man. And although he's supposed to be very godly, he doesn't stop or do anything to help this man. Now, next down this path is a Levite. Now, a Levite would have been like a temple worker, okay? Not quite as important or on the level of a priest who was kind of the recognized leader of the religious and political organization surrounding the temple, but still a well-respected position as a Levite. The Levites did things like uh, singing or playing instruments or watching the door or other things like that, the, the work that needed to be done at the temple. So he comes by. He's not the high-level religious leader, but definitely a part of the religious system. Again, should have known God. Again, should have been very godly. And he comes by, also sees the man, and his godliness also does not move him to stop. And the Levite keeps going. Another very religious person who should have been very godly, who doesn't stop. And finally down the path comes a Samaritan. Now this is interesting because the requirements for the first two, the priest and the Levite, were that you had to be Jewish. And the contrast here is that the Samaritan is not considered Jewish, at least by the Jews. The Samaritans were mixed racially. Okay, so these were racially different people. If you go back in history, the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern part of the nation of Israel. And for the most part, the Assyrians took all the Israelites captive, all the important people anyway, right? If you were like a government official or if you were a high, you know, maybe a business owner or you lived in the city or you had a big house, for sure those people were taken hostage back to Assyria. But there were some Jewish people who were left in the northern part of the land and they ended up marrying outside of the Jewish people group with the Canaanites and the other people groups that were there in the land and they were mixed racially but then on top of that they kind of held on to their own form of the Jewish faith uh, and they used parts of the Old Testament uh, and they worshipped the God of the Bible supposedly but they didn't worship him at the temple in Jerusalem but they worshipped him at this place that they built on Mount Gerizim which was a long ways away from the temple in Jerusalem. So long story short the Samaritans were considered half-breeds racially and complete heretics religiously by the Jews. And because the Samaritans claimed to be the true people of God and worshipped in the right place uh, instead of at the temple in Jerusalem. They're like, no, no, Mount Gerizim is where you're supposed to worship. The Jews absolutely hated them. Absolute hatred between the two. There was not a group of people on the planet that the Jews had more bad feelings for than the Samaritans. So let's think about this parable. The priest and the Levite didn't stop. We're not told why they didn't stop, but they probably 
uh, had really good reasons not to stop, okay? I'm not looking down on them saying, you idiots, you had no reason, that's easy to do, like, oh, you stupid. No, no, there's probably really great justifications for them not stopping, right? This would have been a very dangerous place we talked about, like dark alley, downtown, middle of the night, right? Not a great place to be hanging out, especially by yourself. Clearly, there's some dangerous people in the area. If this guy had just got left for dead, they can't be too far away. Who knows how far away the bad guys are? I better get out of here, right? Self-preservation kicks in. I don't know. Maybe these guys had something to do. Maybe they were on their way. Hey, I'd love to help you, but I'm on my way to do something. You know, we got to work in the temple. I got to do stuff for God. You know, I can't help. I'm running late. I don't know. The priest has an interesting built-in excuse because there was a ceremonial law that said the priest was not allowed to be in contact with any dead body for a week prior to working in the temple. So if the priest stopped by and this guy ended up dying because the priest touched a dead body, he was not allowed to work in the temple for seven days. So the priest could have said, hey, buddy, I'd love to help, but God has called me to the priesthood, so I can't help you, you know, because of my calling from God, I can't actually help you. And this, if you think about it, is exactly what the lawyer was doing when he asked Jesus the question. What are the reasons I can come up with for why I don't have to help this person? What are the good reasons I can talk myself into for not considering this person my neighbor and therefore not loving them? And any of the things we just talked about fall into that category. Well, it's dangerous. Well, I got stuff to do. Well, actually, God's called me to do this, not help half dead people on the road. You know, any of those things are justifications for why I can feel better about not helping this person because they're not really my neighbor. Now, the Samaritan comes along and he also has really good reasons for not helping this person. It's still a scary place. It's still dangerous. When the Samaritan comes along, it hasn't gotten safer in the last 10 minutes. It still might be a trap. It's Maybe he's got stuff to do. <coughs> and yet, look at what the Samaritan does. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when you come back. So the Samaritan came by and saw the man just like the Levite and the priest. But the difference with the Samaritan was that he had compassion. And then, not only did he feel compassion emotionally, but he did something about it. He says he took care of his wounds and set the guy on his donkey and walked his donkey to a hotel and paid a good chunk of money for the guy to stay there. In fact, the historians tell us that they may have been like two months worth of rent that the Samaritan paid. And then he says, if you need anything else, take care of him and I will pay you for it when I come back. So we have a priest who ignores the guy, a Levite who also ignores the guy, and a Samaritan who is kind, compassionate, excessively generous, loving, and apparently trustworthy and has a good reputation because the innkeeper takes his word that he will pay him back later when he returns. And Jesus says, okay, lawyer, in your expert opinion, which, look at verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A couple of things as we finish the parable. First, the whole point of the story is that there is not a classification of person on this planet who you are excused from loving. You don't get to draw a circle around your comfort zone and say, hey, that person is of a different religion than me, so I don't have to love them. They're not my neighbor. Hey, that person is of a different race than me. I don't have to love them. Hey, that person is a different ideology. Hey, that person has different priorities. Hey, that di- person is different geographically. Hey, that person is different in whatever way. And then that excuses you from loving them as God has called you to love. There, there is not one of those people on the planet. There are not people people whom God considers your neighbor and other people who God is like, hey, you don't have to love them. No big deal. That's the bottom line of this parable. Don't fall into the trap of taking this stuff way too far because usually a parable is, you know, one simple spiritual truth being illustrated. And the lawyer, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? So that I can cross everybody else off the list. Who do, Who's in my circle? So everybody outside the circle gets crossed off. I don't have to love them. And the simple spiritual truth to the story is that spiritual difference and political difference and racial differences and geographical differences could never, should never keep you from loving someone as you love yourself. All right, so that's the main point of the story to us. Everybody, everybody on the planet, God is calling us to love. So the main point for this lawyer is actually a little bit different. Jesus tells a story that nobody is beyond the love of the people of God. And the realization for the lawyer should have been me and my buddies, the religious elite, the priests and the Levites and other people who I consider myself a part of, we have a huge hole in our theology. Theology is just a fancy word for what we think about God and and how we interact with God. They should have, the recognition for this lawyer should have been, holy cow, there is a huge hypocrisy in the way we have built our religious system and what we consider acceptable and not acceptable. Because the truth is, their knowledge of God was not leading to fruit, right? We talked about this before when we went through the parable of the sower and it said the seed was planted and then the seed, you know, grew up and then the seed bore fruit. Well, if the word of God was the seed, which is what the parable said, the word of God should be planted in your heart and should be producing fruit. But the word of God was planted in their hearts and was calling them, well, not calling them to, but they were using it to justify not loving a certain group of people on the planet. So that's not bearing fruit where it should be. They were saying, oh, they're, they're not my neighbor, so I don't have to love them. And there was a lack of fruit in that area, right? Remember the parable, uh, not the parable. Yes, it is a parable. We talked about it last two weeks ago when Jesus said, beware of false prophets. There's no fruit in their lives. Thorns and thistles don't produce fruit. And if there's no fruit, that's a problem. And this is very interesting because Jesus was pointing out to this lawyer that in this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, there was very little fruit in their lives. And what he did was he picked a person who was most definitely outside of their circle. If you would have asked the lawyer, probably, uh, or the Jews or the religious leader of the day, who is not my neighbor? The number one answer would have been the Samaritans. 
Racially, they're different than us. Religiously, they're different than us. Geographically, they don't live in the same places. We do. They are completely not, aren't, they, don't, they don't deserve the loving kindness that God wants to work through us because they are not our neighbor. Now, this is interesting because if Jesus just wanted to make it a race issue, very easily could have. He could have said there was a priest who came by and a Levite who came by and a Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jew who came by because the Gentile would have been a completely different race than the Jewish people and this would have isolated that race issue. But Jesus doesn't tell the story that way. Jesus uses a Samaritan as the third person in the story. And by using a Samaritan, he was using another person who claimed to have faith in the God of the Bible. So we have a priest whose faith doesn't move him to compassion and a Levite whose faith also does not move him to compassion. And then we have a Samaritan whose faith is a little wonky. We're going to see later on when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He's like, actually, you worship in the wrong place. But the virtue about the Samaritan's life is that even though his faith is a little bit weird, his faith actually moves him to compassion. At least the Samaritan's faith has worked his way, worked its way into his life, changed his heart, and now he loves those around him because of his knowledge of the God of the Bible. So we have a priest who knows the right things but produces no fruit, a Levite who also knows the correct things but produces no fruit, and a Samaritan for whom what he does know about God manifests itself in love and compassion and generosity and action. Do you see that? Action. Why? I point this out because so many people like to rest in their correctness. Right? So many people, well, we believe the right things about the Bible or the right things about God. Well, we are intellectually correct. And Jesus is pointing out that your intellectual correctness means nothing if you don't go out and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't go out then and produce fruit. And, and we love to do just what this lawyer did and justify ourselves based on our correctness. Well, yeah, they're out there loving people, but they have the wrong theology. They aren't correct on this. They think this weird thing. They said, right, we justify ourselves because we're right. And actually, Jesus tells a story, and the point of his story was to illustrate that if you're right and you're not loving your neighbor, you're actually wrong. I will point this out before we move on from this parable. And it's not the main point, but it also isn't something you can ignore either. The racial component to the story Jesus just told cannot be ignored. You can't read this story and not notice the racial tension that Jesus intentionally put there, right? Jesus intentionally picked someone who the Jews would, like I said, would have considered outside of their people group, outside of their neighbor, right? The lawyer says, who's my neighbor? Because he would 100% consider a Samaritan not his neighbor. And Jesus tells a story where the hero is a Samaritan, knowing that while he is telling the story that the lawyer and the religious elite have all sorts of arguments in their minds as to why they don't have to love the Samaritans. And just to show you what I'm talking about, look at this. Jesus tells a story in a weird way. 
Here's what I mean. If I were telling this story and I wanted you to know that you were supposed to love everybody and not discriminate, I would have told a story like this. You're walking down the path from Jerusalem to Jericho. You see a priest who needs your help. So you help him. You go a little further. You see a Levite who needs your help. You also help him. You go a little further. You see Samaritan who needs your help. What should you do? That's how I would have told the story, right? Because the obvious answer to this question, you should help the Samaritan too, right? Now, everybody's going to want to help the priest because he's the religious elite. He's very important. It's like seeing some important famous person on the road. If LeBron James is pulled over and he's got a flat tire, you're going to help him out. Hey, I'll, I'll help LeBron James out, right? Then you go, you know, a little bit further down and there's somebody who's a little bit less important and famous than that first person, but still an upstanding member of society, right? They're driving a nice car, they look like well put together and things like that. And you're obviously going to help them and, and you should help them. But then you get further down the road and there's a person who's as different from you as is possible. Maybe they voted for the other person in the election. <gasps> Maybe they uh, had the wrong kind of signs in their front yard. Maybe they wear a mask and you don't wear masks. And so they're probably a communist because they wear a mask. Or Maybe they do they they don't wear masks and you're a mask wearer and you're like oh you're endangering everybody right or maybe you know they're they don't speak the same language as you and their skin colors i don't know what the difference is but they're as different as is possible from you and maybe there are people that you really don't care for maybe there are people who have really inconvenienced you in the past maybe there are people who you really aren't comfortable with being in their presence you should help them you should love them as you love yourself. There is an opportunity that God has put you in to love your neighbor as yourself and they're right in front of you even if they aren't the same as you, even if they're outside your circle. But that's not how Jesus told the story. Now, Jesus is much smarter than me, surprise, surprise, but he tells the story in a way, <coughs> excuse me, that the hero of the story is the guy from the other race. Do you see that? He doesn't tell a story like I would have told a story. Well, you see this guy and you should help him. You see this guy, you should help him. You see this guy, you should help him. No, he flips the story around. He says, you're in need of help, right? You're a guy who's laying there, been beaten and left for half dead. And the religious guy comes along, doesn't help you. Another religious guy comes along, also doesn't help you. Now a guy of a completely different race, religion, creed, ethnicity comes by and he helps you. And why, when Jesus tells the story this way, it forces the listener to recognize the value within the person of the different race and religion. Do you see that? Like, like if you told the story of in terms of who you should be helping, then you don't actually have to recognize value in that person. You can actually just be like, well, they deserve my sympathy. Right? They're, they're lower. They're not as privileged as me. So I should really help them out. But you don't actually have to recognize value in them. By telling the story the way Jesus told the story, you have to recognize the Samaritan is the hero. You have to ascribe value to the faith that the Samaritan carries in his heart that moves him to love and action towards a person whom he sees in need. You have to elevate the Samaritan, to at least on the same plane of dignity and honor as the lawyer. It's a big deal. 
It's a big deal calling this lawyer to see the value and worth in this Samaritan, even calling this lawyer to imitate a person of a different race and religion who he, who he does not care for and, and actually probably hates. That's a really big deal. And I don't think it's insignificant considering what's going on in our country right now, considering the race, uh, you know, the race things that are going on in America right now and people on this side and that side and we're all so divided. Jesus addresses these types of things and he went out of his way to address these types of things in the story and goes out of his way to point out the value of a man of a different ethnicity in this parable. And I already know, I'm, I'm telling you this right up front, I know what happens when we talk about this sort of thing. Because it happened in our story, right? Everybody's first reaction is just verse 29, exactly what the lawyer does. And what's it say in verse 29? He desiring to justify himself. So when we start talking about this people group that's over there and they're, you know, they're different than us and they're a little bit more, you know, like this. And we start talking about you should love them and, and this and that. We all start to justify ourselves, right? We get into a convicting story and our spirit starts to squirm a little bit. And we got all their arguments and justifications lined up, right? And when it comes to loving someone on the other side of a divide, our first reactions are to justify my position. And, and I would, but they did this and they said that. And so I did this and, they, and they, they said this and that was wrong. And they lied about this and you can't even trust them and on and on and on and on and on the justifications go why you really are on the right side of the issue, right? You, you rest again in your correctness. To jump to justifying yourself, let me just tell you this, is to fall into the kind of religion that the lawyer and the priest and the Levite represented. A religion that prided itself on being right and correct and didn't bear any fruit. Okay, so if you find that happening in your spirit right now as you're listening to this, which is natural because your flesh is sinful and awful and wicked and your first reaction is to justify yourself, recognize that, fight against it right now. Right? Because the lawyer is the guy in the story who is trying to justify himself. And he, in justifying himself, asks, who is my neighbor? Trying to find reasons not to love his non-neighbors. Right? He said, well, I, there's got to be people on this planet who I'm not called to love. And if you understand the grace of God towards you, you should not be the kind of person looking to justify himself or not be the kind of person looking for reasons to divide from another person or looking for reasons to call somebody not my neighbor so you can feel better about not reaching out to and loving them because of their racial difference or their ethnic difference or their political difference or their mask wearing difference in COVID-19 circumstances. But here's the truth. It is completely natural for you to divide yourself from somebody because you have differences. But the truth is, Jesus didn't call you to be natural. He called you to be supernatural. He gave you the Holy Spirit to overcome those completely normal divisions. Jesus would later say it this way. If you love those who love you, that's no big deal. Everybody does that. If you only love the people who love you, who cares? That's the most normal thing in the world. Every single person loves people that love them. But if you love your enemies, 
then they will know God is among you. They will know you are my disciples by your love. So here's where we finish. So the question is this, how do I inherit eternal life, right? That's what the lawyer asked. It was a great question. And the answer is, love God with all your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So are we to take this to mean that Jesus just wanted this guy to try harder and he would end up in heaven? Hey, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Stop being a racist and love everybody. Okay, thanks. See you at the pearly gates, right? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Right? Like, hey, I really want to not go to hell when I die. Well, just try a little harder. Oh, okay. That's the answer? No, no, no. Because what's going to happen is that if this guy is going to try and live this stuff out, he's going to fail miserably because nobody ever loves anybody like they love themselves, or not for very long at least. So yes, we should be loving our neighbors. And yes, God is going to bring people into your life whom you have every reason to divide from. And he's going to give you the strength to love them. And yes, that is the main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Is that, hey, this idea that there is things that divide us so we shouldn't love other people. No, that's false. Now, the reason the story of the Good Samaritan is famous is it, it's come to symbolize uh, basically strangers helping other people out just for no reason at all. But that's actually not what Jesus is calling this man to do. That's why I told you at the beginning of this parable that the reason the story is famous is not actually why Jesus told the story. We call the, anybody a good Samaritan who just helps somebody without knowing that person, right? Oh, they were anonymous and so they're a good Samaritan. That's not actually what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is advocating for is a person who loves across racial, political, religious, ethnic, geographical differences because the Word of God has changed their heart and is bearing fruit. I'm here to tell you right now, if all you're trying to do is love somebody just because you should and you want to get into heaven, you're going to fail miserably. You and this lawyer are going to crash and burn at somewhere along the line you're not going to do a great job and you're going to have to find another way to get to heaven i'm telling you, you there has to be two ways to get to heaven surprise call me a heretic if you want there's actually two ways to get to heaven one is to be perfect like jesus said love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and we've only talked about the loving your neighbor piece we haven't talked about the absurdity of the idea that you could love god with all your heart soul mind and strength like if you fail at the loving your neighbor as yourself piece imagine how badly you fail at the other piece of this which we didn't even talk about because jesus didn't tell a parable about it but let me just say this you can't do it you cannot love god the way he deserves to be loved so there's got to be another way well good news is there is another way. There is another way. It's through the grace of God sending his son, forgiving your sin through Jesus Christ. So people use the story of the Good Samaritan to be an illustration of doing nice things for strangers. And it is in a small way a reminder of the kind of people we should be. But more than that, it is a reminder that our faith should make it into the way we love people. And at the end of the day, we could never do this well enough to earn our own salvation. You need to know that. You will never love your neighbor as yourself well enough to make it into heaven. 
And so the parable of the Good Samaritan is a reminder of how desperately we need God to be gracious to us. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a reminder of how much we don't do this when we should do this. And the fact that he offers us salvation through his son is an incredible gift, is an incredible reason for us to be grateful because we know we could have never earned it on our own. Amen. Let's pray.